right, back in Philippians this morning. With just a few more verses till we meet the end of this series, uh, Paul is giving us a reminder of what Christ intends to do with his people for eternity and then how that process is meant to be, to be developing now as we live out our lives on the earth. The Christian life is not just a ticket counter purchase, you know, where, okay, well, I go to the counter and I realize there's two destinations and, well, now I'm a Christian and I don't have to go to hell after I die, so now I'm waiting for that to happen. Um, instead... The Christian life is an enrollment into an incredible life and lifestyle that is fundamentally and profoundly different than life without Christ. That's what we see when we open the Bible, so that's what we need to understand. You know, really, it's like all those movies where the hero gets accepted to the ultra-elite, ultra-secret special forces unit that those on the outside didn't even know existed, you know. Um, but the difference is the Christian life, as God describes it through Paul here, is not something hidden away. It's not only available to the best of the best, like we see in those movies. It's available to everyone. Um, that's the message that Paul has been getting at as he details the sort of power and the purpose and the presence that we have as believers day by day. And so this letter that we've been reading is meant as a teaching, yes, but it's also a reminder of what God intends every Christian to be. You and me today, right now, the Lord has come and said, hey, this is what I intend for your life. Uh, when we miss out on the spiritual blessings that we see here, or the gifts of God um, that he has provided to his people, it's not because we failed to earn God's favor. It's not because we failed to earn those gifts, because if we fail to receive those things that we see in the word here, it's because we just haven't received them. You know, it's like we say about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, no, 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 this isn't what you you know, what I want you to become as a Christian. This is what you are as a Christian. Because you're a Christian, because I've uh, clothed you in my robe of righteousness, because I've made you a new creation, this is what defines you now. And if we're not receiving those things or if we're not realizing those things in our life, it's not because we fail to earn them. You don't earn those gifts. They're gifts. It's We fail to open them up, as it were. We fail to receive them from the Lord and understand that we have the power to do what the Lord has called us to do. And so Paul gives us all of these situations and all of these examples and all of these guidelines and teachings here in this verse, uh, in this uh, passage, so that we're fortified as believers and so that we're in tune with the heart of God, so that we don't miss what he wants, so that the confirmation and the development that the Lord wants to do in our lives can go on without being hindered by sin or hindered by these other distractions that are all around us. And so Paul says, man, you have received the grace and the, the mercy of the Lord. You have the peace of the Lord. Here's the work he set before you to do. Keep pressing on. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is the kind of unity that the Lord gives you and the love that the Lord gives you. And so keep pushing on into that and realize that this is what the Christian life is about. And so our text this morning, it's only one verse, but it's a doozy. Philippians 4 verse 8. It's a well-known and often quoted and memorized <coughs> passage. Uh, here's how it reads. Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Well, um, looking at the beginning there, the finally we've seen before in this letter. Back up in chapter 3, we saw that Paul 
had intended, as it were, to start wrapping up his thoughts to the Philippians, only then to be filled up by the Holy Spirit to share you know, what commentators call like a parenthetical teaching. He says, well, finally do this, and then he launches into an, uh, more than a whole other chapter um, uh, about how we minister and how we press on and our citizenship in heaven and our unity in the church, among other things. And so then here again, we get to chapter 4, verse 8, and again he says, okay, finally now this time. And we'll see if the Holy Spirit fills me up again to go another chapter and a half. But he's going to talk about our thought life now for a little bit and our generosity toward the work of the ministry before he wraps up with um, some personal greetings. Now, when I hear the word finally in a speech or if I see it in an article, uh, it usually means that there is one more point that the speaker is going to drive home. That's kind of how we do it you know, in our culture. One last idea that's going to tie together what's been said. Kind of the, if you don't hear anything, this is the thing I want you to hear. Uh, but with Paul, and oftentimes in the scripture, this isn't the case. Because if we kind of break it down, the thoughts that he's given us since chapter 3, when he said his first finally, you know, we can see finally, be at unity with one another in the church. Finally, press on towards the goal as an individual Christian. Finally, rejoice in the Lord in all situations. Finally, beware of evil workers. Finally, control your thought life, and more than that. Um, all of those are points that he's made since his original finally in chapter 3. And to me, it's just a reminder that living the Christian life, having a spirit-filled faith, isn't about one single thing. You know, it's not just about what's the one little package that I have to, you know, understand so that, you know, I pass and so that, that it's good enough. Because that's obviously not what having a spirit-filled life is about. There's no one single issue that we're to focus on while neglecting the rest of our life or or keeping the rest of our life back to ourselves. Because God is not the God of a single situation. You know, pagan gods usually are. When we think about, you know, the Greek gods, you know, that we're familiar with, or Egyptian gods, or tribal cultures, or, or other polytheists, you know, you discover that they have a different god for, like, every situation. Over here is the god of the harvest. Over here is the god of the sea. Over here is the god of thunder. Over here is the sun god, the moon god, and whatever else. And, and they're a god of a single thing. And okay, well, to appease Ra, the sun god, we have to do this one thing on this one day, and then he's done for a year. And if we want to appease the sea god, we go over here and, and we do this, and Poseidon is happy. Uh, but Jehovah comes to us as the one true god, and he says, look, I created you, and I created everything around you, this enormous universe that you can't even see the end of, and I'm with you, and I'm, I'm, I love you, and my intention is to be lord over your entirety, and so God wants to revolutionize our marriages and our occupations and our parenting and our citizenship and our ministry in the church and our finances and our thought life and everything else. And so he's not the God of a single situation. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that, you know, in the Christian life, there really are a lot of things that the Lord speaks to us in his word. It's not, hey, just, you know, just go out and pray this many times a day and you're covered. You know, the Lord is like, no, I want to, I want to revolutionize your entire life. He's leaving no stone unturned in our lives because he has better for us. And that's, you know, the, one of the main differences that you can see between the God of the Bible and every other God of every other religion. It's, okay, what do I have to do in order to avoid the, the anger of this particular God? And if I do that, then I'm clear. You know, and the Lord says, no, no, no. I have better for you in every situation of your life because I am with you. I'm not forsaking any part or any relationship or any situation or any issue. 
However, it requires that we as individuals actually relinquish our lives over to the control of Christ. How the Lord works this out, you know, we don't know because we are finite beings. But he says, you know, I've made you a new creation and I'm going to revolutionize your entire life, but I'm going to give you the free will whether you're going to soften your heart in my hands or whether you're going to harden it. I'm going to give you the free will to either kick against what I'm doing or to go with me. What did, what did Jesus say to Paul? He says, man, Paul, you know, he wasn't a believer yet, but he says, Paul, how hard you kick against the goats. You're kicking against me. And I have this work set out for you to do. I'm going to make you this great apostle that people are going to read your writings for thousands of years. And you're going to be instrumental in countless millions of people giving their lives over to me and finding salvation. But man, you're kicking against the goads right now. You're fighting against me right now. And the same thing happens after we become believers. The Lord says, man, I have this whole world that I have for you. It's not your life plus me. It's everything that you were before is gone and I'm bringing you an entire new understanding, an entire new life, an entire new entirety, but only if you're willing to relinquish that to me. And the Lord says, you know, if you don't want to follow me on the disciple road, I'm not going to force you. If you don't want to love me personally, I'm not going to force you to do that. And so this life and this revolution that the Lord wants to bring uh, into our hearts requires that we actually give control over to him. Now, when we don't do that, when we say... You know, well, Lord, I, I want to hold this back or you don't really need to worry about this relationship or this issue or this sin. Then we're treating God like pagans treat their gods, like he's a, a vending machine that fulfills some desire or need we have at the time. Uh-oh, you know, when I'm going on a sea voyage. I better pray to Poseidon. Uh-oh, I need a better harvest, so I better figure out the God of the harvest. So do this for me and then I'll worship you and... You know, that kind of thing. And it's the same kind of thinking when we try to rule over our lives and then give God little pieces where we think he can benefit us. But what God is offering us is completely different than that kind of understanding. Our lives can't be the same as they were before salvation with just a few improvements. You know, salvation is not a tune-up. The Holy Spirit is not a tune-up for our lives. He is transferring us from one kingdom to another when we become Christians, making us new Creations. And so this morning, Paul turns our attention to the thought life, which is very important. And so rather than go through and, you know, do a word study on each of these, I kind of wanted to just focus more on the importance of our thought life. Because each of these words, you know, is, uh, is really pretty straightforward as we read it. Uh, and instead of dissecting each word, and that's something that I do enjoy doing, and I like putting in the Bible studies, what does this word mean, and how can it be, you know, translated? Those are good things. But, you know, when we look at what Paul's been doing in this letter and what he's doing in this verse, you know, that's what we want to understand. Because throughout this uh, book, we've seen Paul give us some very pointed, very matter-of-fact, absolute language. And I've tried to highlight those passages where Paul speaks in absolute terms to us. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And so there's been all these times in Philippians where Paul says, okay, if you're a Christian, this is how it is for you. And I'm going to drive it home so that you can't understand this any other way. And so this verse to me is one of those. You know, you look at that and he says, okay, let's talk about your thought life. This is what should characterize your thought life. And it's very absolute, isn't it? We look at those things and we're like, yeah, ouch. You know, I mean, if I filtered every single thought I had so far this morning, do they all fit into this criteria? You know, and that's what Paul is driving home. He invites us to look within and evaluate our thought life, our day-to-day, minute-to-minute thought life. What is my mind 
filled with? What is the character of the conversation that I keep with myself each and every day? How am I thinking about God? How am I thinking about myself? How am I thinking about the church? How am I thinking about others around us? Paul's saying, look, look within and see if we've given that part of our lives over to the Lord or if we've held that back uh, to ourselves in some dark recess. Because the thought life will determine much of our submission to and success in the Lord and in the Christian life. After all, what's the greatest commandment according to Jesus? Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Uh, that's what he said in Matthew 22 and elsewhere. Of course, he was referencing Deuteronomy chapter 6, which also includes that we are to love the Lord with all of our strength as well. And it says that in Luke as well. But even so, let's stack those up. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength. Three internal efforts, one external effort. The Christian life is lived from the inside outward, never the opposite. And so when people came to Jesus and said, what is the greatest thing we can do as living beings? What is the meaning of life? What is the, the very greatest thing we can do? Jesus said, you should love God with what's within you. And then from that power and from that feeling, you should love others as much as you love yourself. Wow. You know, I mean, it, it's just crazy. These are clear and absolute certain terms. And, and it starts with what is inside you. Do you love the Lord with all your heart? Do you love him with your soul? Do you love him with your mind? Those internal thoughts and conversations and emotions that you have, are you loving the Lord? Because, Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And Luke 6, 45, Jesus said, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so progress in the Christian life is first made within the heart and within the mind. That's where it starts. Uh, we can't go out and, and through physical labor work up spiritual fervor into our hearts. It just doesn't work. This is what the other religions of the world do. They say go out and do something so that you can garner favor with whatever deity we believe in so that you can you know, earn salvation. And the Lord comes to us and he says, yeah, none of that matters. None of that matters. That's what the Pharisees did. And Jesus said, yeah, you are whitewashed tombs. Really pretty on the outside, but you're completely dead inside. And, and if you're going to come to me dead inside but clean outside, guess what? You've just been defiling everyone around you, and I don't care that you're whitewashed on the outside. And so out of our hearts and out of our minds comes forth um, uh, uh, what we speak and what we do and how we treat people and how we interact with others and how we see the Lord. And so progress within the Christian life is first made within the heart and mind. And so when we determine to relinquish our entire selves to God and his plan and his commands, which is what he calls us to do, it's then that we move forward. And then we understand more of what we see here in the epistles and in the New Testament, in the whole Bible of, man, this is the kind of power that the Lord says, I've given this to you. This is the grace and the, the purpose and the, and the satisfaction that I have for you right now. Not if you, you know, climb to the tallest mountain, I maybe will give you some of it. He says, no, this is what I've given you right now, plus my indwelling Holy Spirit. And so that's how we understand those things, by writing our mind and relinquishing our thoughts to God. Paul says to us this morning that we must take captive our thoughts and filter them through the lens of godliness. And so he gives us this list then so that we can easily determine whether we're filling our thoughts with things that are godly or whether we're filling our thoughts with things that are not godly. 
Um, those thoughts that are not godly are then therefore earthly and are in competition for your allegiance and for your heart and for your future. They cause us to regress away from the Lord and towards other things. Maybe not all of the other things are uh, in and of themselves evil or sinful, but anything that would draw us away from Christ and away from following after the Lord, obviously something that we don't want to do. And again, Paul has not directed this mindset to a select few people. This isn't, you know, hey, uh, you know, pastors or apostles or whoever, this is what I have for you. He says, no, he says, brethren. He says, finally, brethren. And so are you a Christian here this morning? Then, then you're a brother. We're brothers. That's what the Bible says. And so all of us are called to a thought life that is faithfully focused on Christ. That is characteristic of this list we see here in verse 8. We need to be thinking about our Lord, who he is, where he is, and what he is doing. Those thoughts I'm thinking, that conversation that I'm having with myself, which is fueling my words and my actions towards others. Are those thoughts heavenly? Are they acceptable? Are they clean thoughts? Are they honorable? Are they friendly? Are they holy? Are they hopeful? Are they true? Uh, you know, Bible commentators and Christian authors point out a lot that so much of the trouble we get into as believers is rooted in the fact that we focus on things that are not true. You know, Jesus commands us very explicitly that we are not to worry uh, something that I struggle with, I think probably most of us, you know, when push comes to sub say, yeah, I worry. Well, that is a sin. And the, the, I, the deal is that we worry about what might happen, you know, what might come to pass. But those things haven't come to pass, and so those things are not true. When we worry that, oh, man, a meteor might hit the earth tomorrow. Okay, well, on a, in a philosophical sense, yes, maybe. But that is not true right now. And so we're focusing on this thing that isn't real and isn't true and we're worrying about it. And the Lord says, don't do that. Don't think about things that aren't true. Don't think about things that aren't, you know, holy and set apart. Those things are speculation. Yet so much of our lives is consumed with worry. I know mine is and I know that's something that God desires to true out of my heart as he works in me to deal with something that isn't heavenly. Now, obviously, we cannot achieve... Uh, a perfect state of godly thought this side of eternity, okay? No one's saying that all of us have the, the perfect, you know, Christ-like godly mindset all of the time. Um, but that's not what we're being asked to do. What we're being asked to do by God is to pause and understand that he desires our whole being, and that includes our thought life. He wants to rev revolutionize everything about our lives down to the very thoughts we think. And we can move forward in spiritual progress by taking a look at what we're thinking and evaluating whether our thoughts in general are like this list in Philippians 4.8 or whether there's something else. And as we're faithful to do that and submit ourselves to that and say, yeah, Lord, I want to have godly thoughts. I want to think things that are clean and honorable and acceptable and praiseworthy. And when we do that, that's, then the Holy Spirit kicks in. And when we have these you know, sinful thoughts or when we have these thoughts that are full of worry or these other things, the, the Holy Spirit comes in and he says, yeah, I have better for you than that. And we say, yeah, I want what's better. I want what you're offering. Uh, it's very simple, but um, you know, it's not always something that we realize in our lives. And so if we do that, if we give over our thoughts to the Lord, we're going to see very quickly if we're filling our lives with negativity and with complaining and with filthiness or, or if we're filling it with other things. And what we want is not to fill our lives with negativity, not to fill our lives with complaining, not to fill our lives with filthiness. Why? Because the Bible says that what you fill your mind with is what comes out. 
It's how you will interact with other people. It's how you will speak. It's how you will move around the world. And so, you know, complaining over something small may not seem like a big deal, and maybe in a sense it's not, but that sort of thought life is contributing toward uh, an earthly perspective and an earthly mindset and an earthly vision. So, of course, we want what God is offering us. He's offering us something better. He's offering us peace. Man, you know, if we could only all understand the peace of God and, and apply that to our minds and to our thinking, what an amazing world it would be. But as we've seen again and again, this conformation and sanctification that Jesus offers us doesn't happen on its own. Okay, you know, uh, that's what we've seen certainly in this book, but we see it throughout the Bible. You know, filthiness happens on its own and sin happens on its own because that's our old nature. What Christ desires to do in and through us requires that we participate and actively allow ourselves to be changed by the Holy Spirit and the power of his word. That's why we're given the Holy Spirit and, his, and, and the Bible so that we can participate in all of that, that which, which God wants to do in our lives. The Spirit and the word of God are readily available to each one of us right now. And that's an exciting uh, and comforting thing. So we can't be disciples and not care about the content of our thoughts. We can't see divine appointments and know more clearly the heart of God if we're meditating on dishonorable, unheavenly, negative, and carnal things. That's the deal in this passage. And so Paul invites us again to choose this day how we're going to fill ourselves and how we will interact with the indwelling Holy Spirit. Um, I said I wasn't going to do a word study, but this one point is kind of too fun to pass up. The Greek word used for virtue there at the end of the Bible verse is the word arete, and it is translated as manliness. Uh, I like that because to me, the, it's a wonderful idea for us to take hold of. Are our thoughts going to be the characteristic of the old man or are our thoughts going to be characteristic of the new man? The old man with his lusts and his sin, the new man who has been made and born again into the kingdom of God and given God's special revelation in his continual presence. What kind of manly man are we going to be today? So if we want victory, if we want maturity, if we want progress and not regress, the change begins within. And we are companions with God who are called to take up a cross and move forward on the disciple road actively and purposefully. And we're equipped and empowered to actually be able to do that. And so today, think about compassion instead of criticism. Think biblically instead of lustfully. Think future, not failure. Think about Jesus today, who he is, where he is, and what he's done. Take your thoughts captive and see what the Lord does with you. Amen? All right.